Hello and welcome back to season three of Sequelizers. This is the show all about fixing bad sequels to good movies. If there was a good movie that was followed by a terrible sequel, we're going to do our very, very best to try and fix it. As always, I am your host, Jack Chambers, and joining me are the two teams of titular Sequelizers. The team of Alec Plowman. You're only supposed to take the bloody plutonium. <laughs> and Stuart Ashen. Hello. Now known as... Kojak needs plutonium. <laughs> and the team of Tim Matum. Ahoy there. And Matthew Stogden. The role of Matthew Stogden will be played by world director Michael Caine. I only do this because the pay was quite good. <laughs> I know nothing about Matthew Stogden or his character, but I learned he's also maybe from London, so I will be fine. Being a sequelizer bought my mum a house. so That's all that about us. And your team name, gentlemen, is another Michael Quinn. Would you like to do it, Max? Nah, it's like I'm not doing it justice. You can all do it. It's all right. <laughs> Boats. The size of Tangerine. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get a Michael Caine impression out of everybody by the end of this episode. If you haven't really clocked on, this is real two of us fixing Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, the 1979 disaster of a disaster movie. And, yeah, should we refresh our listeners... Minds, since it's been a week since they've heard your elevator pitches and cast and crew and all that good stuff. And uh, I'll come first to Kojak Needs Plutonium. Hello. So, our film titled Beyond Poseidon comes out Earth Year 1997. Our Earth director is Michael Bay, and our Earth composer is John Williams. I assume this film is in the sea, Alec, not on Earth. I, I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> the Earth is mostly water. <laughs> And appearing in this cinematic Titanic, the cast are... See what I did there? I just implied our pitch isn't very good accidentally. Damn. <laughs> um, fortunately, it's Ace, so it'll stand up on its own. The cast returning is Robin Shelby, the character of... But this time played by good old Nicolas Cage. Judy will be played by Nicole Kidman. Larry Hamilton is Paul Reiser. Bill Tate, portrayed by John Malkovich and David Tabor by lovely, lovely William H. Macy, fresh from Canada to bless and enrich all our lives. <laughs> right, elevator pitch. 25 years after the original Poseidon adventure, a new luxury cru cruise liner is in deep trouble. But this time, it's more than just the rising waters that the passengers are up against. Also, steam. <laughs> <laughs> it's water and it's gaseous equivalent. Steam. <laughs> so, gentlemen, you ready to... So let's dive into the pitch. Oh, fucking hell, Jack. <laughs> nautical. It's nautical. Right. Hey. Ugh, Ugh. Fucking puns. Are you ready? Aye, aye, Captain. I regret asking. <laughs> <laughs> we open on a television news bulletin from GNN, the global news network. The anchor reports on the launch of a new luxury cruise liner. Anchor, eh? Oh, fucking hey? hell. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm just going to interrupt with all the puns. I wish we hadn't named all our characters Port Starboard. <laughs> the anchor reports on the launch of a new luxury cruise liner. They state that this new vessel, the Trident, is the most expensive cruise liner ever built. The company that developed the boat is Aquarius, the same company responsible for the ill-fated Poseidon. We are told that the fallout from the original Poseidon incident seriously damaged the reputation of Aquarius, once the biggest cruise liner company in the world, 
and that they have faced financial troubles ever since. The launch of this new ship, near to the 25th anniversary of the original Poseidon disaster, which the company has drummed up as a huge media event, seems like a last-ditch attempt to restore their standing as well as their fortune. The anchor also informs us that Robin Shelby, played by Nicolas Cage, one of the survivors of the original Poseidon disaster, will be attending the launch as guest of honour. The move, they note, has been met with widespread criticism from the media and is seen as a tacky publicity stunt. The scene moves to a red carpet ceremony where hundreds of guests, watched by photographers and camera crews, are boarding the Trident. It is the arrival of Robin Shelby, accompanied by Aquarius head Larry Hamilton, which garners the most attention. Reporters flock around the pair, who are bombarded with a range of questions, including many about the safety of the ship and comparisons with the original Poseidon. See, seizing on what he sees as a PR opportunity, Larry praises the Trident. He explains that the ship, which features the most advanced anti-flooding system ever installed in a seafaring vessel, will never face the same fate as the Poseidon. He continues that the ship uses a revolutionary new chambered system to localise and prevent flooding, and in the unlikely event that this system is compromised, there is a backup, a pump system for bailing out water adapted from those used on semi-submersible vessels. Judy, an investigative journalist barges her way through the crowd of paparazzi, then corners Robin. She gives him a grilling, alleging that he was paid a huge six-figure sum by Aquarius to attend the launch, a fact that has been kept from the public. Larry intervenes, attempting to make light of the situation and brush off Judy's comments, but when she presses him on the company's financial woes, as well as allegations of internal corruption and embezzlement, Larry becomes flustered. He tries to keep up a friendly appearance and brush off her questions while quickly moving Robin along, but when out of earshot, he angrily tells a security guard to make sure Judy doesn't get on board. On the Trident, Larry gives the assembled guests an introductory greeting, encouraging them to explore the ship and make themselves familiar with its many wonderful features. He says that a gala banquet will be held in the ballroom at 7pm, with every expense covered by Aquarius, and encourages all the guests to attend. In the background, a suspicious-looking crew of around 15 men in black overalls board the ship, carrying several flight cases of unknown origin. They are stopped by Chief Engineer David Tabor, who asks them what they are doing. Their leader, Bill Tate, steps forward and says that they are the relief maintenance team. Tabor is unconvinced, saying that there wasn't supposed to be a relief maintenance team, and if there was, he would know about it. They respond that Larry Hamilton requested their presence as a failsafe, David is still sceptical, but Larry comes over and dispels the situation, saying that they have clearance and come highly recommended. Later that evening, the gala banquet unfolds. During the many speeches, Robin is bored to distraction and finds himself looking out the window. He notices that Judy, in spite of Larry's warnings, is sneaking onto the ship. Intrigued by this, he quietly slips away from the proceedings to see what she is doing. Meanwhile, we cut to the maintenance crew, who, under the instructions of Bill Tate, are opening the flight cases to reveal submachine guns. They're definitely not the relief team. Spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> they then storm the ship's control deck, killing the captain. A computer expert sits down at the ship's console, hacking the controls to the ship's anti-flood defences. He prepares the console to disable the watertight seal on the ship's lowest chamber. A warning message flashes up on the screen. The expert looks at Tate, and Tate gives him a nod. The computer expert then engages the protocol. Robin confronts Judy and asks what she's doing. She reveals that she's investigating Aquarius, reiterating her allegations of corruption from earlier. Judy is taken aback when Robin appears to share her distaste for Aquarius. She asks why, if he doesn't like Aquarius, did he take a six-figure sum to appear at this event? 
Robin replies that his sister Susan, as seen in the original Poseidon Adventure, has cancer. The money is a means to an end and will pay for her treatment. Suddenly, David Tabor emerges, confronting Judy and saying that she is not supposed to be there. David calls Larry Hamilton by walkie-talkie, informing him of Judy's presence on the ship. Hamilton arrives, a security detail in tow, angrily bellowing that he'll have Judy arrested. However, the conversation is interrupted when a massive rumbling sound rocks the boat. One of the lower chambers is beginning to flood. Bill's men storm the gala banquet, submachine guns in hand. Panic ensues before Bill's men fire shots into the air, bringing the passengers to a stop. From the control deck, over the ship's intercom, Bill announces that his crew has taken over Trident and is holding it to ransom. They issue their demands to Aquarius, saying that they want $100 million transferred to a specified bank account. Once the money has been paid, they will steer the Trident to international waters, where a helicopter is due to pick them up and leave the passengers unharmed. If Aquarius does not comply, they will flood a new chamber every 15 minutes until the boat sinks, and if any attempt is made to intercept them before they reach international waters, they will flood all the chambers and sink the boat. In the control room, Larry Hamilton's underlings are brought to Bill Tate. Tate instructs that they contact Aquarius to issue their demands. One of Hamilton's underlings angrily refuses, raiding against Tate and his men. Tate shoots him in response. Shaken, one of the others agrees to deliver his message. One of Tate's men then enters the control room and issues a report. They've completed a headcount of all the passengers registered on the Trident, and Larry, Robin, David, and a security detail are missing. Also, he recounts that a security call is put in just before the explosion, and that Judy is also on board. Tate sends a team of five of his men to find them. Meanwhile, Judy, Robin, David, Larry and the security team compose themselves after the explosion. Judy says that she is baffled by Tate's plan, as it's a fool's errand. Everyone knows that Aquarius doesn't have the money to pay the ransom. Larry brushes this off, saying that these men are deranged terrorists and don't need a motive. Robin says that they need to find a way to stop Tate and his men, or they're all done for. David says that there is a way to reverse their plan. If they can reach the controls for the pump system, they can bail out the water from the flooded decks and stop Tate and his tracks. Robin, who for some who eh, Robin, who as we know from the original Poseidon, knows a lot about cruise ships for some reason, <laughs> says there's a problem with this plan. The pump system is accessed from the control deck, which is occupied by Tate. David responds that there's a second control terminal installed in case the control deck was ever compromised. From that terminal, they can not only bail out the flooded decks, but also override the control terminal. Uh, also override the control deck terminal and disable Tate's men's access. However, it's in the engineering deck towards the bottom of the ship, and at the rate they're flooding chambers, they'll have less than an hour to reach it before it is completely submerged. A frantic race against time ensues in which Judy, Robin, David, Larry, and the security team traverse the rapidly flooding lower decks of the ship, facing original Poseidon Adventure-esque perils in the process, as well as evading, outsmarting, and ultimately disposing of Tate's men and commandeering their guns. During this, Larry's security detail, or cannon fodder, as they're known in the movie biz, die various honourable slash grisly deaths... Honourable? Yes. <laughs> I'm sticking with no, it. No, no, I like it. ...due to water, gunfire, fire fire, and the myriad other perils a riveting 90s Poseidon meets the rock adventure will throw at you. Realising that Team Judy slash Robin must have a plan, Tate angrily questions Hamilton's lackeys. At gunpoint, one reveals to Tate that they're trying to access the override control on the engineering deck. Tate orders his computer guy to start flooding the deck before leading his own team of men to finally apprehend them. 
Judy, Robin, David and Larry reach engineering to discover the water level is rapidly rising. They'll have to swim to reach the terminal. Following instructions from David, Robin says that he'll go as he's the swat bloody hell. Following instructions from David, Robin says that he'll go as he's the strongest swimmer. As Judy, David and Larry watch from the still dry upper walkway, a tense scene ensues in which Robin swims to the bottom of the submerged deck, barely managing to hold his breath as he overrides the controls from under the water. To their relief, he succeeds, and the water level begins to drop. Their relation is short-lived, however, as Tate and his men arrive. David and Judy, armed with the submachine guns, take out Tate's foot soldiers, but Larry is apparently knocked unconscious and Judy is apprehended, losing her weapon in the process. David gets the drop on Tate, pulling the submachine gun on him. It looks like stalemate, with David's gun trained on Tate, and Tate's lackey's gun trained on Judy. Suddenly, a shot is fired. David looks down to see blood emanating from his torso. He falls into the water revealing Larry as the shooter. Tate's man pulls the resurfacing Robin out of the water. Judy questions Larry, saying that he was in on it all along. Larry responds that Judy was quite right when she said Aquarius could never afford to pay the ransom. In fact, that had never been the intention. He, on the orders of Aquarius, had hired Tate and his men to sink the Trident. Aquarius knew that they would never make their money back on the Trident. They were far too far... Aquarius knew they would never make their money back on the Trident. They were too far in the hole. But the insurance payout from a terrorist attack on their boat would be more than enough to revive their fortunes. Larry, Tate and his men would escape to international waters, presumed dead, and start a new life elsewhere with their cut of the money. But now, thanks to Judy and Robin, that plan is in ruins. Tate turns to Larry and asks him what their contingency plan is. Larry retorts that there is no contingency plan. Panicking, the pair begin to argue. The conflict escalates and they raise their guns at each other. With Tate's man distracted by the mounting conflict, Judy and Robin seize the opportunity, overpowering him and stealing his weapon. Larry fires at Tate, but only grazes his shoulder. Tate, clearly the more experienced with the gun, fires back, hitting Larry right between the eyes and sending him into the water. Tate is left in a standoff with Judy and Robin. The now desperate Tate says there's no way out of this impasse for him. He might as well fire and at least take either Judy or Robin with him. But before he can pull the trigger, a hand emerges from the water and grabs his leg. With his last strength, the mortally wounded David pulls Tate into the depths below, condemning him to a watery grave. We cut to a courtroom months later. Judy testifies against Aquarius and her damning account results in life sentences for the company's CEOs. Outside, Robin is waiting for her. As the pair walk away, the scene fades to black over an Aerosmith rock ballad cover of The Morning After, the Oscar-winning <laughs> song God. from the original Poseidon Adventure. 1997, everybody. <laughs> so now it's time to go over to... Hang on, hang on. Who hasn't said it yet? Stuart hasn't said it yet. Stuart should say it. Then the team name. What's the name of their team, Stuart? I believe their team name is... Boats... The size of tambourines. Hey! I don't understand, <laughs> Master Wayne. Boats the size of Lamborghinis. <laughs> Would you like to remind the listeners of your title, release year, director, cast, crew, elevator pitch, all that good stuff, please, sirs? The title is Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, because in 1979 it worked for them, so it worked for us. And and our film is actually going beyond the Poseidon Adventure. It, it doesn't is. take place in the same it's thing. beyond the Poseidon adventure, oh completely, literally. Release year, 1979, some time after the... <laughs> Indescribable <laughs> amount of years. Poseidon Adventure. Uh, the director, Terence Young. Returning cast, Ernest Borgnine as Rogo. Uh, new cast, William Holden as Travis Hodgson. 
Jimmy Stewart as Jasper Hamilton, Eva Gabor as Zofia Hamilton, Dennis Hopper as Toby, Bruno Gans as Meinrad. Was that German enough for you? And Charlotte Rampling as Audrey. Our composer will be John Barry. Our synopsis is not what we're going into. Our elevator pitch. Rogo and his lawyer travel to Austria to give testimony against the parent company of the Poseidon when the train they are on is caught in a mountain tunnel cave-in. Trying to escape, they learn not everyone is as they seem. Some of them are fucking robots. <laughs> Beyond the Poseidon adventure! <laughs> <laughs> Westworld crossover, please. Yes! Your Brenner turns up. Rogo the robot kind of works. See, yeah. yeah. Mike Robot. Robot. <laughs> so, let's get stuck in then, shall we? Mm, let's get stuck. Stuck in, in in a tunnel. A tunnel, right? Train, yeah. train. I'm on a train. <laughs> Beyond the Poseidon Adventure. Following his experience on the Poseidon, Rogo is accompanying his lawyer, Travis Hodgson, to give testimony against the Ocean Liner's parent company in its home country of Austria. On board a train bound through the Alps, Rogo and Travis discuss the events of the previous film. The train then plunges into darkness as they enter a long tunnel. Rogo seems momentarily shocked as his ears pop, but Travis simply smiles and says Europe is full of tunnels through mountains, the Alberg mountain pass being some six miles long and very sturdy at 80 years old. We then pass over a sleeping passenger before being introduced to two individuals travelling in the same carriage. Jasper Hamilton, the US ambassador to Austria, and his wife, Zofia are arguing about leaving their home so quickly. Jasper implores Sophia to remain calm and keep her voice down, noting the fellow passengers. At that moment, the lights flicker and the train rocks violently before crashing to a halt. Travis checks to see if everyone is alright. A fellow traveller in the carriage, Minorad, has suffered a minor head wound but is fine. The ambassador and his wife confirm that they are alright as well. Telling them to stay put, Travis and Rogo head to an adjoining carriage, the passengers of which did not fare as well, and several are dead. They are startled as two individuals emerge from a further carriage, but are unable to reach them due to the wreckage. Navigating them across, the two other survivors narrowly reach Travis and Rogo before the roof splits and rocks pile in. The two passengers introduce themselves as Audrey, a British nurse on holiday, and Toby, an American military veteran attending a reunion. Toby jokes that he might get there a little late, but the joke falls flat. The group head to the back of the train, trying to convince survivors to come with them, explaining that the front of the train is mangled and unreachable. Scared and unsure, several people want to stay put and wait rescue. Rogo explains he's been in this situation before, but his manic ranting further deters people from joining a roving party with a potential madman. Carefully climbing down from the back carriage, which is precariously raised off the tracks by a few feet, the group take with them a torch and medical kit. Toby believes the cave-in would only affect one entrance of the tunnel, and so they head away from the train and back down the tracks. Clearing the train a few metres, an explosion is heard, and everyone falls to the ground. The train, and everyone on board, is crushed beneath the falling debris. The group stabilise, counting themselves lucky, but Toby has broken his leg from the falling debris, and is now very worked up. He furiously says he knows an explosion when he hears one, and this is no cave-in, this is a planned operation. Clearly highly strung, the group tried to collectively sate the veteran, and in the end Audrey gets through to him, explaining that there may only be a limited supply of oxygen, and they must preserve their strength. Eventually, Toby calms down. Slowed by Toby's broken leg and the cold conditions from inside the unheated tunnel, morale starts to run low and everyone snaps at each other. 
In the process, we learn tidbits of information about the survivors, except for the Hamiltons, who are very guarded about their personal lives, explaining it's an occupational hazard of being a diplomat. Unsure how long the tunnel goes on for, Minoad explains that his uncle used to work for the railway and says there are periodic stations created when the tunnels were first carved out, with sleeping quarters, maybe even radio gear. Everyone agrees they should keep an eye out for such a station. Toby, hobbling, grabs the torch and looks around the tunnel. Finally, he spies a wire embedded in the ceiling and explains a radio won't, wouldn't be able to transmit through the rock but should be hardwired to broadcast externally. Following the cable, the group are fixated on this lifeline. Falling behind, Toby is helped by Rogo, who tells the vet about his time on the Poseidon. The two men are joking about Rogo's exploits when Toby notices a crack spreading down the walls of the tunnel. Calling out to the group to run, Toby and Rogo struggle to keep up as the tunnel floor starts to crack and fall away. Toby slips into the crevasse, but Rogo manages to grab hold of him, holding onto the damaged rails with his other hand. The other survivors try to reach them, but are foiled by the unstable floor. Realising that he's doomed, Toby says he's done being a burden and lets go of Rogo, disappearing into the darkness. Travis crawls slowly along the bent rails trying to reach Rogo, but just as he touches his old friend, Rogo's grip fails and he slides down the collapsed floor and, with a mighty bellow, vanishes into the black too. Shocked, the group backs away from the collapsed section, with Audrey comforting Travis over his loss. Meinrad hypothesises that the accident must have ruptured the tunnel and revealed various hidden caverns and crevices leading to the collapse. The group continue via cross-dissolve and their spirits are lifted when they reach an alcove with a large metal door. Prying open with the crowbar left by the door, the five survivors clamber inside. It is dark and covered in layers of dust. Finding a switch, a generator kicks into life and the lights illuminate out revealing two simple rooms, a workroom with a radio and several simple supplies, and a sleeping quarters behind it with a cot and table. Minerad searches around the workroom while Travis pulls a celebrating Audrey to one side. Her relief is not shared by Travis, who discreetly points to the disturbed areas of dust and a fresh wooden board in the corner of the room. Before Audrey can dismiss Travis's concerns, Meinrad stands and swiftly turns. In his hands is a pistol, cocked and pointed straight at Jasper. Travis asks what the hell is going on, but Meinrad explains that there are more than enough bullets for everyone, so no one should try anything. Panicked, Audrey asks who Meinrad is. In a dark cavern, a flickering torch clicks on, revealing a wounded rogo at the bottom of a natural cave, filled with rubble. He crawls over to Toby, but quickly realises that the soldier is dead. Cursing Toby's stupidity and his own, Rogo attempts to climb up towards the crack where he fell in, but is unable to make any progress. Shining the torch around, he spots a small tunnel leading deeper into the caverns. Saying out loud that it's better than sitting around here with my thumb up my ass, he ducks down and enters the crevice. Back in the workroom, Meinrad explains that he is East German, not Austrian, and works for the Stasi. This matter is a private one between him and Mr. Hamilton, and is of Soviet national security. With Sophia a little hysterical and demanding to know what's going on, Meinrad prompts Jasper to tell the group. Reluctantly, the ambassador reveals he is, in fact, a Russian agent. Meinrad interjects and adds that Stalin had an infant heir who was squirreled away shortly after his death. Now of age, there are forces who wish to put a Stalin back in power, and Soviet high command cannot have that. Allegedly, Jasper knows the whereabouts of the young man's location. Zofia, unaware of all of this, shouts at her husband, asking if this is why they had to leave so quickly. 
Meinrad explains that the Hamiltons are being watched, and knowing this would be their only way out, charges were rigged to go off at his command to derail the train. Everything was planned in order to extract the information and bring Jasper back to Russia for interrogation if possible. Audrey is horrified that so many lives were senselessly sacrificed when Sophia suddenly lunges at her husband. Meinrad, seeing this, pulls the trigger and shoots Sophia in the back. Dying in her husband's arms, Jasper looks down at his wife, a look of fury and betrayal on her face. Seizing the opportunity, Travis kicks the table towards Meinrad. The gun goes off again and ricochets around the room before hitting the generator, which begins to spark and smoke. The two men struggle while Audrey tries to tend to Sophia, but it's too late. The generator erupts into flame and the room starts to fill with fire and smoke. Despite his age, Jasper joins the fracas and in the commotion the gun goes off again. This time, Meinrad sinks slowly to the floor. Jasper stands slowly, gun in hand, framed by the flames. Travis and Audrey attempt to flee through the fire which is growing but are unable to and all three retreat into the sleeping quarters, shutting the door against the blaze. A moment of uncomfortable silence hangs in the air. Jasper finally explains that he doesn't want to kill anyone but Travis and Audrey cannot tell anyone about this. Travis tells Jasper that he's doomed them all trying to save his own hide, and Jasper snaps back that he learned long ago that the world is every man for himself, and the only way to survive is to ensure you're on the winning side. Cue a classic Jimmy Stewart speech with a twist, as Jasper rants how America has become soft and complacent and lacks the determination necessary to see out the Cold War. Angered, Travis punches Jasper, and the two men briefly scuffle, knocking open a wall panel to reveal a hidden tunnel. Jasper exclaims that Meinrad must have arranged it to make his escape, and the three enter, Jasper keeping Travis and Audrey at gunpoint. The three crawl through the walkway before quickly reaching a makeshift hatch on the surface. Jasper carefully takes point, telling them not to try anything. Travis whispers to Audrey that he wouldn't fire a gun in the mountain, lest it cause an avalanche, but Audrey is clearly scared stiff, and all of them are notably colder than before. Stepping into the light, Jasper beckons the others out. With everyone out the cave, gunfire rings out and snaps past Travis's head. All three dive into the snow, awaiting a potential avalanche, but the sound merely reverbs through the mountain. Travis snaps at Jasper, asking what is happening, but Jasper doesn't know. He can only assume that as Meinrad isn't here, someone wants them dead. Audrey angrily lashes out at Jasper, all except you. On a nearby rise, a gunman moves from his position and heads cautiously towards the group. Looking through the scope of his rifle, the shooter is taken out as a rock comes crashing down on his head. Stood over the would-be assassin is Rogo, who exited from a nearby opening and followed the sound of gunfire. With a, well I'll be damned, Rogo puts on the gunman's coat and strides toward the group, but is surprised when he sees Travis waving his hands frantically. Raising the pistol, Jasper takes a shot at Rogo, who is hit in the shoulder, but the recoil from the gun causes Jasper to lose his footing, and he skids towards the edge. Audrey and Travis race to help him, but Jasper falls and his body tumbles down the cliff edge. Carefully making their way to Rogo, Travis and Audrey are delighted to find the cop disgruntled but alive. Rogo jokes that he's like a cat, but he's running out of lives. Audrey asks why the gunfire didn't cause an avalanche, but Travis can only assume that the explosion must have already dislodged any drifts that would have moved. Inspecting the body of the unconscious assailant, Travis guesses this must be Meinrad's contact or partner. With both men dead and a long trek down the mountain ahead of them, Rogo offers the coat to Audrey and the three huddle together for warmth. Unsure whether to expose the ambassador's story, or for their own safety, omit various details from any testimonial. End scene. So coming back to Kojak needs plutonium. He does. <laughs> Hello. 
He does always need plutonium. That does make sense. And lollipops. As is often the case, my first question for you gentlemen is, why 1997? Did, have you ever specifically asked that before? <laughs> yeah, I always say, why 1997? Yes. Why 19, so, a film was set in 2003, Jack. No, why but, 1997? <laughs> but you forgot about 1997. So, yeah. <laughs> Our logic was that the issue you have with the Poseidon Adventure is that you've got a very short window to make that sequel because the disaster movie thing quite quickly falls out of favour. And the market becomes very oversaturated very quickly with those movies. You have a resurgence in the 90s. And it seems like the logical time to do a Poseidon adventure is at that point. Because there is this... You're far enough away from the original that you can do something a bit different with it. This is happening in Hollywood at that time. Funnily enough, I was thinking about poseidon the remake and how a big part of the problem with that is that it comes about 10 years too late 2006 yeah. Isn't it? So, yeah and i think that this is just it's it's bang on trend at a point in hollywood when people were were there was a big market for this kind of movie we mentioned twister and armageddon yeah. and all that kind of stuff it is bang on trend it because is because the biggest movie of all time arguably is Titanic, released in 1997. Oh, yeah. Which is why one reason why I thought, your film can't work. Literally flooding compartments, <laughs> everything. is like, you've done it the year of Titanic. And no matter how good your film is, is Bay anything, and much as I love it at certain arms, you've done it against Titanic in 97. This came out first. Yeah, yeah. That's fine, I guess. But, but uh, new time came. Uh, I think uh, it's, a, it's a very different kind of boat movie. It's I terrorist think boat movie. The, well, yeah, while the details are, you know, while there is that thing of it's a boat, I think it feels like... It's a, a ship, Daddy. It's, it feels like it's a... Yeah, it feels like a completely different the, thing. The girlfriend's not going to be hassling you to go and see this film three times at the cinema like she will with Titanic. It's not the love story. Burn on your girlfriend. Yeah. I don't know if she's seen Titanic. I haven't. Should I see Titanic, anyone? Is it actually Titanic? good? No. Yeah, you should I don't know film. how you've avoided it, because it's, it's like they actually said, good it's film. Been... Yeah, it's legitimately a good movie. It's worth watching. I take, I take your point, but I think there are plenty of ways around that. I don't think you have to be beholden to the... And to Speed that. 2 Cruise Control in the same year? Because Speed 2 fell with the terrorists on a boat because of Titanic and stuff. Also because it's dog shit? And there's that too. I mean, yeah. I mean, again, I'm not... I'm literally, it's just the one of those things like, fuck, that's a huge thing. And because that's like when Jack said, why 1997? I'm like, yeah, why 1997? But yeah, yeah. sorry. Yeah. yeah, take your point. But I think... Play it safe and go 96. Just wreck yeah. on it. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of 1997, you've also kind of got some uh, Con Air with yeah. some Nicolas Cage and Malkovich... Yeah, taking over a boat kind of act, yeah, or yeah, taking over yeah. a vehicle rather, because you got the plane in Conair. Obviously, yeah. I fucking love Conair for the record. I love Conair. Mm. Yeah, it's a, so do I. Yeah, it's Conair Pollux might be the best film. Fucking hell! I was going to say, Con Conair is the best Michael Bay film that isn't directed by Michael Bay. No, Conair is the best film. Sorry. Full stop. I've not seen Conair either. Oh, oh my god! What were you doing in '97? <laughs> not watching those films. <laughs> Um, and the fact that you're sort of 25 years from the original, you also diverged in a way that there's no kind of subplots like the original had. Was that kind of a conscious decision to kind of like, both of your pictures have kind of gone off genre from the classic disaster movie. You guys kind of go more actiony, and as we'll get to in a moment, the other team, I'm not saying the title, that's Tim's responsibility, have gone kind of more spy, espionage kind of thing. Was that kind of a conscious decision for the 
era or just just to do something different from the original i think there's still a fair amount of um disastery scenarios in the second act which we kind of brush over we talk about like our big disaster moment as their well not di- but in which they faced kind of similar tribulations but yeah i think the problem is that the subtitles <laughs> beyond poseidon <laughs> similar <laughs> tribulation <laughs> wow yeah i think it's um it's one of those things where Again, it's you want to keep elements of that, but you want to take it to a, a slightly different place because especially as we're still on a boat, it's that thing of we, as far as set pieces and things, you run the risk of retreading what you did in the first film. So it's, And that's one of the big weaknesses of Beyond. Yeah, so it's striking a balance between what is familiar but also adding in enough and giving it kind of a, you know, it needed to be a 90s movie, really, because the 90s. So that was... It didn't need to be, but you yeah, made yeah, it. Yeah, well, you well, made once, it a 90s Once movie. we went with the 90s thing, it was like, we're going to push this a bit actionier and a bit more that kind of stuff. Aerosmith. <laughs> that sounds like Aerosmith. Tim talked to me on the yeah. Shrek pitch. We're going full <laughs> yeah. Shrek for yeah. 2004. <laughs> yeah, and I think we... I, I wouldn't say we went full 1997. No, no, you did not at all, no. You know, Con we, Air did. Yeah, we're at least... We're at least like you know seventy percent nineteen ninety seven. If you'd have, if if uh, Steve Buscemi has a cameo, then it it knocks it up oh, another twelve percent. Almost, almost did. <laughs> really? Almost, yeah. There were a few going through those movies. I mean, with the exception of Nicole Kidman, who doesn't really do this kind of movie, except for in Our Mind, where she does, because William H Macy, of course, is also Air Force One. Oh yes, so of course. There yeah, is yeah. a. It's interesting in that you kind of have a pedigree of stars for 70s action movies and there's kind of a yes. pedigree for 70s disaster movies and there's like a pedigree for 90s disaster movies yeah. and we wanted to get as many of them in there as we could. Kidman did The Peacemaker around this time, which is... With Clooney, I think. Yeah, yeah. which is sort of action mm. disastrous. The disaster was tedious. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the DVD were disastrously tedious. <laughs> <laughs> Good lord! But yeah, but you've got to be on a boat, or you're not Poseidon. And if oh, you're on a boat that's again, oh, that's right. Right. Fighting, fighting, no, words, fighting words, oh, Stuart. No, take that back. God. No, I didn't mean like that. Oh, sorry, that was just in my head. What is a land boat on rails but a train, <laughs> sir? <laughs> I was thinking more of the train. word Poseidon means. And speaking of Nicole Kidman. Didn't you have her as a as a water based investigative journalist in Jaws? Your Jaws pitch as well. Who you will, who you will notice is also called Judy because it's the same character. Oh shit! Frampton cinematic Dude. universe. Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, fresh this is busting that other case open yeah. wide. So from episode one of season one of Sequelizers. Yeah. God, it makes some the sense first, why they don't want her on the fucking boat now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we saw that film. Yeah, we, we know what you did. <laughs> So yeah, Judy is the same character. She is back. When was your Jaws two set? It's ninety five, wasn't it? It was ninety five. Yeah. yeah. So this is a sequel to our Jaws two. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> but without sharks, with Judy, Se- second film in the franchise still doesn't have a surname. <laughs> she gets her own spin off where she finds one. That's, that's after she'd appeared three times. She has to go to up a mountain to find one. The shock is her name is Stalin. <laughs> Stalin's baby she all blows along. that case wide open and finds more than she bargained for <laughs> we did want to see if anybody pick up on that because she doesn't have a surname in Jaws 2 because we forgot to write one so um, 
So that's why she doesn't have a surname. I, I must. I thought it was like, oh, it's a bit of a weird link. You're doing that again. Not. Oh no, you're literally doing that yeah, yeah, again. Yeah, yeah. Same character. Fuck me. You're literally building the Frampton verse in front yeah. of our Around eyes. Nicole Kidman. <laughs> <laughs> Around Nicole Kidman. She's your Robert Downey Jr. Water-based journalist. Oh my journalist. god, she is. I'm going to pass it over to Tim. Boats the size of tangerines. Yeah, it's a full house <laughs> of tangerines. In a similar vein to my first question for Kojak means plutonium. Why 1979? Because why, it's the why inverse the... of 1997. Yeah, that's the only reason. Illuminati we chose confirmed. It. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite the palindromic. You didn't set it in 7,900. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, as, as much as films the space year of that, that would be appropriate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, on the planet Zeiss. <laughs> oh, 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 uh, simple. Nicole Kidman is an investigative journalist. <laughs> Judy Zeist, that's what Judy Jetson. As long as you can have that robot maid who is disturbingly square. So yeah, the reason I ask this is because kind of as as Alec mentioned and as we all kind of talked about, Mm -hmm. by 79, the disaster movie kind of boom was dying off. So it seems like the the sequel itself, the real one, was badly timed. So it seems like an odd choice. What, what was the kind of thought the, process? The reason that? was 1979, as you mentioned, the, the audiences just had enough. It seems, oh, the bubble of burst, or whatever one is, hey, whether whether literally beyond the Poseidon adventure was the thing that caused it. Whatever the reason, we wanted to almost acknowledge that by saying, here's the hook. Here's the disaster element to get you in. It's the onboard. We've got returning character Rogo. We've got his story continuing on. We're going to find out all the various bits and pieces and backstories. And then it becomes something entirely different. Again, the alien aliens mindset of just changing the genre. And again, it's almost anticipating and pivoting from the audience wanting a taste of disaster films, but not really, basically. So we've gone for something that's more... Would you like to see the disaster that is socioeconomic politics in Europe? <laughs> <laughs> that crowd, please. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, I think it's yeah, just incorporating things that people tend to like. So the only thing you could do, in all honesty, if you wanted to do genuinely, yeah, Russians, it, to genuinely interpret the, the change of pace of audience things, if you really wanted to do that, you do a full fucking bond and you set it in space because everything started being space. So it'd have to be like a shuttle From launch or something like that. Boats to shuttles. Yeah, Poseidon 2000, yeah. you know. <laughs> and that's kind of the thing. And that's what, where it goes next, effectively. But we thought rather than go forward, go back. And yeah, the initial concept that, that Erwin Allen talks about, about the whole thing of a train, like, we can, we can genuinely do something with this. But then the, you're right, the, like, the original concept, as you guys said in Real One, on its own, it's like, oh, right, they're on a fucking train and it stops. Great. That's not thrilling. So you basically have to inject something there. And the what, I- if, what if Stalin's baby was involved? Yes. <laughs> and it was more, that was for two, two key reasons there. One was initially, this has to be something big that the audience will be shocked by because it's like, oh, we've gone in to see this film that we think is one thing. And not only is it something completely different, there's something that's just, and it sounds silly, in the 70s, possible. And in a terrifying way. So, so would you market it as a disaster movie? Oh, straight up, And yeah. then, oh shit, it's spies it, I would, and shit? We would or probably would you ma- sorry, yeah. reveal that in the trailer? Or? No, we would We would market it in the typical 70s way. Of like, um, Ernest Bognite is back. <laughs> <laughs> but it would usually say the whole like, a disaster, a train, but their destination is death or something stupid yeah i think i I was gonna say that the it's it's more along the lines of uh, murder on the orient express of we would advertise it's like this is the thing but not everything is as it seems much we did in the elevator pitch Mm. with the idea that 
come along to see this crazy disaster film. I like Borgnine's back being hairy and screamy. Oh, that'd be amazing. What's going on? <laughs> he is hairy. And he is. Yeah. Oh, Borgnine's yeah. back and he's hairier <laughs> than ever. Yeah. <laughs> it would be it would be the typical way we'd advertise well because Jimmy Stewart's career is starting to sort of peter out now and we would say and Jimmy Stewart in a role of a lifetime that you've never seen. <laughs> Jimmy Stewart as you've never seen, seen him before. before. <laughs> yeah. Because much in the way, same way that I, I, I really do personally love uh, audience expectation twists. We are like, oh, and I'm not going to say much because I don't want to spoil something like 10 Cloverfield Lane, but John Goodman, everyone thinks, oh, John Goodman's a great fun guy. He's like a big, op- oh my God, no. It's kind of what they did with Vertigo. You know, the, yes. the, 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 yes. the whole idea was, oh, like Jimmy Stewart is so lovable and yeah. here's him being, you know, this kind of weird obsessed character yeah. uh, and we go one step further yeah and it's it, it, I, mean, I love uh, specifically in, in Sergio Leone's um, Once Upon a Time in the West where I mean I think it's actually a quote from uh, Henry Fonda where it's a, the um, idea that they've got this entire family gunned down in the first few minutes and these, these guys in long coats step out of the bush and the camera pans around and he wanted it's such a close up he wanted people to say Jesus Christ it's Henry Fonda how in you know you Henry Fonda's about to shoot a child. That's we can't. That's not a thing that happens. It'd be like The Rock, and then Rock's played sort of bad guys before, but The Rock genuinely like punching a pram. The example I always think of is Robin Williams in One Hour Photo. That, exactly that kind of thing. So I think by that point you'd be so engrossed, hopefully, in what's happening and what you're expecting, and William Holden going on with the story that the actual disaster of it all would become more enthralling. Just the whole will they get out of this cave? Because there's still the element of survival to it, and I think that's the key point about the whole disaster element it's the because one could argue is the disaster throughout and this disaster for us is like you've got the train collapse which again isn't actually a technical disaster it's a man-made disaster because it's an explosion then you have the ramifications you've got the various uh cave-in little bits and all the various things and the cavities opening up and then you get the fire and the thing it's all basically in inverted commas our fault unlike the earthquake sort of thing but we also didn't want to have a a sequel directly with a, a returning character where oh the same thing happens again. He just happens to be a diehard moment. He's in the wrong place at the wrong time. I was actually going to make that point because I was kind of watching uh, and reading about, you know, the history of the disaster movie and that kind of thing. And it reminded me of the way that Die Hard came along in the 90s and then every film was a Die Hard, but mm. in a different place, uh, you know. And it, and they have a very similar kind of setup in it's, you know, people trapped in a single location, Usually trying it's to the get classic out. elevator pitch of my movie is Die Hard on a blank or yeah. Die Hard in a blank. Exactly, yeah. like un- Under Siege Two is Die Hard on a train, and so I like the idea of Rogo as our John McClane in that they are both. Uh, he's John McLean, sli- but hairier. I mean, slightly a- crazy cops with bad marriages. Yeah, uh, whose shirts go from white to brown? Yes, because of filming. <laughs> uh, and yeah, uh, as a as a survivor and as a almost American hero. An, an American hero. Ernest Borgnine, American hero. <laughs> you guys also go for kind of a, a downer ending. Like, it seems a bit out of place in that time. Like, most disaster movies kind of end with, and some people survived, and it's all about humanity's perseverance, and if we all band together and put away our differences, we can blah, blah, blah. That doesn't happen in this one. It's just like, it's Cold War. Oh, God. Yeah, I think for that reason almost, because there's two, two, three different things. One is that I would say we put the Toby character in there to reference the Vietnam stuff and the Jimmy Stewart things. And so the idea is the more open-ended... It, it's, I wouldn't say it's completely somber or, or, or downbeat. It's just more the idea of a bit sobering. It's a little bit... It's like, 
maybe we should stop and think about this a second. In the same way that man-made disasters, and if you want to add the um, ecological mindset to it, it's like, no, this mountain was fine until we, A, plowed a big fucking tunnel through it, and then B, blew it the fuck up. <laughs> um, and the same way, like, America and its foreign policies at that time, and, and Vietnam and everything else, and the Cold War, everything going on in the country's sort of mindset plays into this very openly outwardly simple film bringing in the espionage elements as well like you it's difficult to do that and then have a clear-cut like positive freeze frame we did it john bender fist in the air style ending oh, mission accomplished. Um, yeah you know this well it's interesting in book nine because in the original thing we wrote and it was only very recently changed tim's like i'm gonna change some stuff i said yep that's great I, I completely agree with you good call i killed rogo off full stop oh interesting yeah and we were like we didn't and tim brightly said no 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 we, we should bring him back and it sounds silly if it's just holden being a grumpy motherfucker um, saying, oh, we're going to get down this mountain with um, a, a rather traumatised Charlotte Rampling. It's like, that's quite a down ending. But with the lovable fucking Rogo <laughs> stumbling across as a, hey, guys, and getting shot. Oh, I killed fuck. a spy with a rock. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, let's go down the mountain, guys. <laughs> it, I think that levity that he just brings would make it, it would, um, as weird as it sounds, again, using the diehard comparison with the whole limo driving away, I know it's the whole, that's a more hero ending, but I think this one would feel less... Uh, bleak because of the individuals involved. They'd be this sort of like uh, you know, old friends, a lawyer and a cop going down a mountainside with this you know, British nurse and just sort of like, uh, like, like swimming to shore in Jaws. Um, one could argue that like, they ain't gonna make it off shore, they're gonna die. Um, but it's the same sort of thing um, in that we're presenting um, an ending that is open-ended very questionable what the future is because that is the state of what you know the audience is guessing but also the characters are again back to the humanizing element the characters themselves are strangely lovable if that's the right yeah and 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 out of the worst and you've and you've had that surge of positivity of no we didn't actually kill off the uh the only surviving character from the uh the first one well not he's not the only survivor of the Poseidon the only survivor the only character we're following yes we also had to make sure that Stuart had to kill himself because we had this thing in as well about the idea. The, the, dark, the dark meaning behind sequelizers. Yeah. Stuart, Stuart had to kill himself because he realised that all trains are the future. All of your pictures <laughs> secretly had like backmasked suicide notes for Stuart. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I, I should have really said Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart's character, Jasper, um, because the idea of the folly, the, he is affected. And again, that's the, that classic... That, and it sounds weird that would have been the the upbeat ending in a weird way because like hang on he's a traitor and it's like yep the traitor got his comeuppance by his own folly that kind of thing and it sounds silly to say now but again in the 70s at the time he, he doesn't get taken out by anyone but himself so that that kind of thing and i mentioned subplots for the other guys and you go deep on the subplots because you've got their spice out of things and stalin's baby yeah. When I was when you said that, I was like, "Oh, it's gonna be Jasper." Oh no, I wouldn't have age at all. Yeah, that's what. I, yeah, I thought that was a bit weird. No. So this is like a tw- uh, probably twenty it, year old at this point. Is that a thing, or have you just pulled that out of nowhere? Or like, where no, did that? No, I think there's quite a few things that in fiction that have from? the idea that a Stalinist legacy, um, and that it, the 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 Soviet government were doing whatever they were doing at the time, <clears throat> and there'd always be some sort of like like when any empire falls, like the Anastasia sort of myth or whatever you want to call it, the idea that someone will come back and set the old regime in place. It's always the nearest something. Targaryen will sail across the sea. Ex- exactly. Yeah. I was literally just reading earlier today about how napoleon's nephew became emperor of france again like 
after he had died because they were like, hey, it's another Napoleon. Remember that good time when we had an emperor? (laughs) That worked out great. And everyone was like, yeah. And then he did it for about 20 years and then everyone was like, no, it's not working. And they overthrew another government. It's also a bit of a nod for the fact that we got Bruno Gantz. And as I mentioned in Real One, uh, Bruno Gantz has been in Boys from Brazil, which is a story about clones of Hitler. Um, and people again trying to continue legacies and things. so again the audiences have those kind of films those things that were stories because again it was all in the there's less the 70s more of the 50s 60s there was always the idea of shit what happens if the war happens again that and then it was the whole cold war thing where where is this going what are we going to have now and this sort of lends itself to like hey guys cold war's pretty bad right now but uh stalin that would be pretty awful wouldn't it and again it's so extreme because it is and we're getting into the ter- territory of like 70s sort of schlocky, big entertainment-y uh, action kind of films and things and uh, various exploitation films and things. And it's just a kind of development that people would just literally throw out there like, oh, by the way, it's this. Like, I mean, I know this is a bad example because it's beyond the Poseidon Adventure with the plutonium thing, but you would have something along that nature, something that escalated it a bit bigger. Also, I'd like to point out, not only did we sequelize the Poseidon Adventure, we sequelized Stalin. Yep, you're welcome. And I mean, it's I mean, about time somebody did, to be fair. Yeah. So, I've realised that if you took your pitch and you took our pitch and you mashed them together, you would get the taking of Pelham 123. Oh my god. Yeah, kind of, actually. Mm. That's very true. Which is Both a good film. Yeah, an extremely good film. Mm. Yeah, the remake's a big pile of dog shit. Yeah. So, that is both pitches. And I suppose it's time for me to render my verdict, as is the tradition on sequelizers. Of course, I enjoyed both pitches so much more than Beyond the Poseidon Adventure because whew, couldn't do any worse. There's a there's a clip on YouTube it's worth looking for. Just literally type in Beyond the Poseidon Adventure clip along with the, the making of. And it's literally uh, uh, Sally Field and Michael Caine crawling through a duct and she just does the most ridiculous performance where she wails, then jib- jibbers on about being attractive and could have been married millions of times and then it's a odd joke it's just explains everything bad about the film it looks cheap nasty and awful and as you, it just you don't need to see the film just watch that clip and the making of you're done so going to kojak needs plutonium um i did enjoy your kind of twist on it making it more actiony and making it more kind of contemporary and using michael bay when he wasn't a piece of shit and that's always good when you, as soon as you said michael bay i was like oh no Thankfully, you timed it well, and I think, like you said, it, it's that second boom of the disaster movies, and yeah, as long as you get in there before Titanic, then you should be fine. Um, although, we don't really care about box office numbers in this thing, like we're just trying to make good films, not necessarily financially successful films. And I really enjoyed your choice of cast as well. I thought it'd have some, some good chemistry there that would kind of reclaim what was so good about the first one you got some nice human elements in there combined with the 90s hyper 90s schlocky action disastery stuff as well um and i think that that would work quite well for the for the period put nicholas cage in things in the 90s and you basically can't go wrong case in point conair weird thing before we go on you both had characters with the surname hamilton yeah you had larry hamilton Big bad corporate dude, and Jasper, Jasper Big Hamilton, bad Big bad Russian guy. Yeah. <laughs> and I really enjoyed what uh, both the size of Tangerines. I yeah. don't know why I've got Australians, but I have. 
It's always like just the. Oh yeah, I liked how you guys used the original plan, like we said, the Erwin Allen. It's on a train thing, and then completely subverted the genre and were like, "It's not a disaster movie." Because the note I made is, as soon as you guys were doing it was like, "Fuck the train crash happens in like the first two minutes." You were like talking, and you're like blah blah blah, and then the train derails. I was like, "Oh, shit! Okay, where's the rest of the movie?" And you were like, "Stalin's baby, motherfucker!" <laughs> like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> I liked, and and you meant there's a lot of ties in there with James Bond as well, with John Barry, and kind of tying it all together and. I think that's an appropriate time, and yeah, like I said, 1979 was the the tail end after the disaster movie boom, and transferring that franchise, for want of a better phrase, into yeah. the spy genre is a good way to avoid doing what Beyond the Poseidon Adventure it actually did. It was just like, well, just do another disaster movie without a disaster. So yeah, I think it was it was a clever way of getting around of having it in 1979 and actually making it work for that time period, and. Yeah, changing it into, yeah, kind of like a, a Cold War commentary and, like I said, the kind of sombre, sobering kind of ending works in the fact of you've got Toby as the, the Vietnam kind of vet guy and it's talking about a lot of the issues that are going on at the time, whether it's Vietnam and the Cold War. They're kind of, like you said, the, the American system at the time is all kind of tied into that really terrible foreign policy, just like it is today. Circles. It's almost like nothing's changed Nothing in ever 40 changes. years. And we've got disaster films all over the fucking shop. Anyway, I shall render my decision. And the winners of Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, I'm going to have to go with Kojak Needs Plutonium. Hey. Congratulations, gentlemen. Hey. There you go. I very much enjoyed your pitch. You did it despite the Aerosmith, because I hate Aerosmith, but, you know, I'll let you off of that. Don't give me that look. I can see you through your pop shield, frowning at me. Aerosmith are universally terrible. I don't like Aerosmith either, if that helps. Right, you guys have clearly never listened to Aerosmith from 1973 to 1979. After that, I will completely give you that. But in that period, I'm going to lend you some I albums. didn't even know there were a thing in the 70s. I'm going I'm I'm to dub you some tapes. American Stones is fucking amazing. So if you disagree with my decision, or if you have any suggestions for Beyond the Poseidon Adventure and how to fix it, you can email us at sequelizers at gmail.com or tweet at us at sequelizers. And that is with E's and S's because we're British and it's a pun on the word sequel. No Z's, no A's. For God's sake, people stop tweeting us. You're just, oh, you're spelling it wrong. We're not. It's That's the whole point. And uh, of course, as Tim mentioned at the end of Real One, we also have a Spotify account, and we will be posting all of the themed soundtracks from the winners of each episode. That's all linked in the episode description as well, as well as the making of the Beyond the Poseidon Adventure video and all that other good stuff that we mentioned earlier on as well. So yeah, go and check that out. And next week, the season finale begins. Done. It's the beginning of the end. Done. 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 There we go. We're finally doing it. Oh, you're setting me a bed up here. Thank you. Yeah. Speaking of John Williams, <laughs> we're gonna finally. I'm just enjoying it. We're finally. Yes. Ish. I enjoy that piece of music, not this rendition. And uh, we're finally tackling something that is also very, very requested. Indiana Jones. <laughs>
and the kingdom of the crystal skull. Oh, I thought that... we were doing Turkish Star Wars when I heard that music. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was the language oh. from Stingray. <laughs> the, the things we, like, we like to end a season on a big one, and this is one of the most requested we've had, I think. Mm. And so it's second only to Highlander 2, I believe. Pretty much, mm. yeah, mm. yeah. And Spider-Man 3 is very up there as well. Yeah, Spider-Man 3, Highlander 2. So we're giving you the goods this season. So prepare for season four. It's full of things you've never heard of. Yeah. Yay. Um, Beyond so, yeah. the Poseidon Adventure. <laughs> <laughs> Revenge of the creature. We like to throw curveballs. Yeah, definitely. We like to have a curveball, at least one curveball each season. Mm. And yeah, we're going out big. Indy 4, The Fridge, The Aliens. Fucking scrap the lot of it. Let's Soviets. CGI oh monkeys. Yeah. CGI monkeys and Soviets. Shia LaBeouf. Shia LaBeouf. Actual cannibal, Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> oh, right. It's going to be a big one, and we'll see you next week. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Goodbye, my internet friends. Fucking <laughs> hell. I said the robot. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, my internet friends. You were only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.